One of the most important tasks as a Christian parent is to teach your children the Word of God. When our kids were younger, we would like to read uh, different stories to them out of a children's Bible before they went to sleep. And it was interesting how they would latch on to different stories. Uh, a couple of stories that they gravitated to when they were younger was the Christmas story and the life of Moses. And they would tell those stories and reenact those stories. And it was always kind of humorous how they would kind of match them together. And so you had Jesus hanging out with Moses and so forth, uh, just kind of all hanging out there together. Well, as much as they latch on to those stories, the first character who rose to prominence the most was Jonah. Jonah. We had this old Bible with extremely small print in it. It was falling apart, but it had pictures in it. And it had a picture of Jonah and the whale. And one of my daughters absolutely loved it. She would carry it around the house and tell the story over and over again. Now, it's not hard to understand why kids love the story of Jonah. It's an incredibly interesting story. But the story of Jonah is not just for kids. Yes, it is a short and simple story, but it is also incredibly well-crafted, theologically powerful, timelessly relevant, and deeply personal. Many of us may be familiar with the story, but I believe God has some powerful truths that he would want us to be, learned, to be taught today and the coming weeks through the book of Jonah. Today we're going to start a five-series message on the book of Jonah. And as always, I would like to encourage you to read along as we go through this book. Uh, Jonah is only 48 verses. You could read it aloud in about eight minutes or so. So let me encourage you to read along as we're going through our series on the book of Jonah. You will get so much more out of it if you are reading along through the week, and then when we come on Sunday morning to God's Word, it'll be so much more fresh and alive. So you can do it. Eight minutes. You got it. So let's dive in. You ready to dive into the book of Jonah this morning? Yeah, we're waiting for some comments on that good pun, but it will be a whale of a series. I can promise you that. <laughs> there was a shout of joy in the back there over that great pun. Hopefully there won't be too many more of those in the coming weeks, but I cannot promise that. Well, let me invite you to turn to the book of Jonah. Uh, if you don't know where that is, look in your Bible. It's a small book in the Old Testament. Don't worry that you can't find it. Open up your Bible, look at the table of contents, find that page number, and turn to the book of Jonah. While you're doing that, let me just give a couple of pieces of background information about the book of Jonah. The, word, the name Jonah meant dove, and he lived in the 8th century B.C. in the northern kingdom of Israel. Jonah would have been a contemporary with the prophets Hosea and Amos. 
Now, the book of Jonah is classified as one of the minor prophets. There are 12 minor prophets. Now, these prophets are no less authoritative or inspired as the major prophets like Isaiah, but they're just simply smaller. The books are just simply smaller in size. The author of the book of Jonah is never identified in the book, but I think it's safe to believe that either Jonah wrote it himself or he passed on the autobiographical information to someone who did write it. So hopefully you're there with me now in the book of Jonah. There are going to be two parts to our passage here this morning. The first part is the task of Jonah, the task of Jonah. Let's read verses 1 and 2 together. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So like some of the other prophetic books, this book begins with the notion of the word of the Lord coming to the prophet. More than likely, this was not Jonah becoming a prophet. Rather, he already was a prophet. And in fact, Jonah appears in 2, Corinthians, 2, Corinthians, 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, which says, He, speaking of Jeroboam the king, restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. Now remember that after King Solomon the kingdom of Israel divided in half. The southern portion was called Judah, and the northern half retained the name Israel. And during the reign of this particular king, Jeroboam II, Israel reclaimed lost territory, even kind of restoring the, the border that it had under the glory days of Solomon. So this was quite an accomplishment. And all of this happened according to the prophetic word that Jonah gave. Okay, so he was a recognized prophet in the land of Israel. And in the New Testament, Jesus himself recognizes that Jonah was a prophet. So, as he was a prophet, the word of the Lord came to him. And what was that word? Well, it, it was God giving Jonah a task, a sudden and surprising task. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, which was about 500 plus miles northeast of Israel, located in modern day Iraq. Nineveh had been around a long time, possibly as long as 7,000 years before the time of Christ. It was now an important city in the Assyrian Empire, eventually a little bit later down the road becoming its capital city in about 700 B.C., and the Lord calls it a great city, and it was. It was one of the largest cities of the ancient world. It had about 600,000 people that lived there, which was very large for that time. The city had an outer part that was about 60 miles in circumference, and then it had an inner part of about 8 miles. Magnificent walls aligned that 8-mile sort of inner core there, and there was a moat around it that was 150 feet surrounding this city. Amazing, impressive city. Now, Jonah's task was surprising because he was being called to go and preach to the Gentiles. This was unique. You see, in the past, 
prophets had spoken about the Gentiles before, but they had never actually gone to the land of the Gentiles and spoken to them. So this was much different. This was a heavy prospect placed on Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh with a different language and different customs. This would have been a daunting task. Would you not agree? And there's more. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and to preach against it. Why? Well, as it says there, their evil had come up before the Lord. You see, from about 900 to approximately 612 B.C., Assyria was the reigning superpower of this region. They were the reigning superpower, and not only were they powerful, but they were also brutal people. They were brutal. This was a brutal day and age very often, and perhaps Assyria was the most brutal. Let me just give you a snapshot of their horrors. I apologize in advance uh, for these things that I'm going to say. Some of them are, are pretty graphic, but you need to understand their evil and what Jonah was going to be walking into. The Assyrians would decimate the lands of the people they conquered, leaving them in just absolute ruins economically. The, the soldiers and the citizens of the peoples they conquered would be burned, they'd be decapitated, they'd be impaled. Sometimes they would actually make a pyramid of decapitated heads and put them outside the gates of the city that they had just conquered. They would cut off a person's legs and one arm and leave one arm, and then they would go and shake that person's hand, mocking them before they died. They forced conquered peoples to parade around the heads of their loved ones on poles. They would dash children to the ground. They would skin people alive and then put their skins on the city walls. Captives were led away naked, often sticking metal hooks in their noses or their lips and tying them all together and leading them out of their land. And captives would experience incredibly harsh and brutal slavery. So God was angered at the great evil of the Assyrians. Jonah was to speak on behalf of the Lord about the unrighteousness of the city. Let me ask you, would you want to go and preach to that city? So before we thoroughly rub Jonah through the mud. Hearing these things sheds some light, doesn't it, on the enormity of his task. Jonah was being sent to a vast and foreign city. Surely he wondered, would people even notice him there? And moreover, as we just talked about, this city was part of the Assyrian Empire, which was the most powerful and brutal empire around. And with his message, Jonah knew that he very well could be taking his life in jeopardy. And just as a footnote, Assyria was also enemies with Israel. We know that at this point, Israel had been threatened uh, three times by Assyria. And in response, 
uh, Scripture records how they had already been paying tribute, which was, was a means of, of giving money to a superior power so they would not invade you. They had been doing this for a long time. So all of this would have been in Jonah's mind. This was the task of Jonah. Let's go to the second part of our passage, the rebellion of Jonah, the rebellion of Jonah. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So how did how does Jonah respond? Well, to start, he did rise up just like the Lord had told him to do. But instead of rising to go to Nineveh, he does not obey the call of the Lord, but he disobeys it. Interestingly, it's not said why he fled. Surely, surely some of those reasons that I said earlier was, were in his mind. But none of these things are actually mentioned. And we find out the chief reason all the way at the very end of chapter 4. Now, I'm not going to tell you what it is because the writer was probably just trying to build suspense in the readers. As I said, this is a well-crafted book, so you're going to have to hang in there with me until we get to chapter 4 to find out the main reason that Jonah fled. And he does flee. Instead of going to Nineveh, he goes to Tarshish. Now, scholars are not sure exactly where this was located. Perhaps it was all the way to Spain. But the exact location of Tarshish doesn't matter as much as the simple fact that it was being pointed out that Jonah was fleeing. And not only was he fleeing, he was fleeing in the opposite direction. He was uh, supposed to go west, uh, east when he, um, instead he went west. Here's a little map to give you an idea of just exactly how far he was going in the opposite direction. So he was going to Tarshish complete other end of the spectrum. Now, to, first, to, to go there, he first had to go to Joppa. The text says, if you notice there, that Jonah went down to Joppa. Now, on one hand, this is just a simple geographical description. Jonah was going down to the shoreline where Joppa was located. But on the other hand, it was also a spiritual description. As I said, this is a well-crafted book. It's showing his rebellion against the Lord. Jonah was beginning his spiritual descent. He was rebelling against the Lord. He was not going down a good path. And so when he arrives at Joppa, he finds a ship going to Tarshish, and he boards it. Now, it's possible that he was just going as a mere passenger. But it's interesting, it's perhaps more likely that Jonah was actually hiring the ship and its crew to take him there. It's sort of some complexities there in the Hebrew language as well as ancient Jewish tradition interpret it to be more likely that Jonah was actually hiring the crew and its ship to take him there. Showing you the drastic measures with which Jonah was taking to flee the presence of the Lord. And again, it says there, once it says there, he went down into the ship. Jonah continues his spiritual descent. Let me mention one other important part of this verse. Two other times, it says there, 
that Jonah wanted to flee from the presence of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, I don't think it means that Jonah believed that he could escape the presence of God altogether. He says a little bit later in verse 9 when he's talking to the crew that God was the creator of heaven and earth. He knew that he could not escape from God. He knew that God was everywhere. He is omnipresent, as theologians like to say. Rather, as a prophet, Jonah stood in the presence of the Lord. He awaited his commissions from God, what to say, what to do on behalf of the Lord. The prophets would stand in the presence of the Lord and await what God had for them. You see this, for example, in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, where the prophet Elijah says, quote, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand. In Jeremiah chapter 23, the Lord warns of false prophets, false prophets. And in verse 18, it says, the Lord says, for who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? He goes on to say in verses 21 to 22, again speaking about these false prophets, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they hadn't stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from, their, and from the evil of their deeds. So I don't think Jonah was saying that he could somehow categorically escape the presence of the Lord. And I don't think Jonah was renouncing his faith in God. Rather, he no longer wanted to be in the presence of the Lord as a prophet. He wanted nothing to do with this task. And so he was going to flee from Israel where God manifested his presence most clearly at the temple. Now, God could reveal himself anywhere he wanted to, but I think it was common for God to reveal himself to these prophets there at the temple where they would hear from the Lord. So Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord. He no longer wanted to be a prophet. Jonah's rebellion is striking because he's the only true prophet who directly rebels against God. Some prophets might question what God had said or was doing, but to my knowledge, at least, no one that I know of explicitly rejects God. Now, as we said earlier, and I tried to stress, Jonah had a monumental task in front of him, didn't he? He really did. But Jonah had been entrusted much as a prophet. Therefore, much was expected. Jesus says as much In chapter 12 of Luke, verse 48, when he says, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. So it is fair to say, as monumental a task as Jonah faced, he is a classic example of a believer in rebellion. He's the James Dean of the Bible. He was clearly told by God what to do, and he rebelled. Now, in closing, I want to make some application from Jonah's life. Specifically, all of us, all of us are capable of following his example of rebellion. And let me encourage you to take this seriously for three reasons. Three reasons. The first is rebellion 
escalates. Rebellion is a cancer that grows. With Jonah, he goes in the opposite direction of where God commanded. More than likely, as I said, he hired a ship to take him away from this task. And his rebellion will continue to grow as we'll see next week. That's the nature of sin. That's the nature of sin. You cannot quarantine sin. Either you kill it or it will continue to grow and take over your life. It never stays the same, but it desires more and more if you let it. So if you have an area of rebellion in your life, an area where you say no to God, do not think it will stay the same. Rebellion escalates to further rebellion. That area will only fester and worsen and get deeper and deeper in your life. And not only that, but rebellion in one area will link up with other sins. For example, if, if you lie, excuse me, if you uh, steal, eventually then you'll lie about it, right? Or if you covet, eventually it will lead to greed and to lust. So rebellion escalates. Rebellion also devastates. Jonah wasted time and money by going on this ship that led him nowhere, and he's almost, and as we'll see next week, he will almost die as a result. Have you ever heard this saying before? Sin takes you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. Sometimes our lives can really turn into a mess, like Jonah. And we wonder why. Well, it's because rebellion devastates. Rebellion devastates. But here's some good news. Third, God forgives our rebellion. No matter how intense your rebellion is, God will forgive it. No matter how long and prolonged your rebellion is, God forgives. 1 John 1.9 is a wonderful promise. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God forgives. Wherever you're at, if Jonah had asked for forgiveness, the moment he decided to flee, God would have forgiven him there. If he had decided to ask for forgiveness when he was on the boat, God would have forgiven him there when he was on the boat. Nehemiah 9.17 says that God is, quote, ready to to forgive. You never pass a point where God says, no, I'm not going to forgive you anymore. He's always ready to forgive. Isn't that great news? But we need to add something important to clarify that when we say that God will forgive our sins. When we talk about confessing our sins, it doesn't mean that we say we're sorry just so we can kind of soothe our conscience and then we continue and pick right back up where we left off. No, the idea of confession means that we agree with God, we see it for what it is, and we want to forsake it. And so when we do that, then we experience the wonderful power of cleansing and renewal. But let me ask you, has God identified some areas of rebellion as we've been hearing from his word this morning in your heart, in your life? Maybe it's an area that scripture commands you not to be doing something, cheating on your taxes, gossiping, pornography, dishonoring your parents, 
abuse verbally, physically. Maybe it's an area that God commands you to do something. You know you're supposed to be reading the Word regularly, and you're just not. Or you know that God wants you to be baptized to show and to tell the world that you are a follower of Christ. You know that that is what the Word says, but you just always find a reason not to do it. You're not sharing your faith. Like Jonah, you rather would not tell others about the hope they can find to God, but just you're keeping it to yourself too much. You know there's a relationship that's just kind of a festering wound in your life, and you're not lifting a finger to try to bring reconciliation. Whatever it might be, we need to deal with it. We need to stop making excuses like, well, most of my life is pretty good except this area. Jonah was a prophet, but he didn't want to obey in that area. Or maybe we're clinging to the excuse like, I'm doing a lot better than most people. That might be true. But God's not focused on other people. He's focused on you, and he wants you to obey him fully. So deal promptly with that area where there is rebellion in your heart. Because if we don't, the reality is is that the warning bells of God grow softer over time because our heart can grow numb to it as we tune God out and we experience that devastation that rebellion can bring. So let's, this morning, let's seek to humble ourselves and to confess those sins before God so that we can have our consciences cleared, that we can have peace in our hearts, and that we can have a renewed hunger to serve the one true and living God. Lastly, we have you know, spoken this morning of believers who are, like Jonah, rebelling against God. But if you have never trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, let me encourage you to do so this morning. In fact, Scripture says that this isn't even just an invitation. This is also a command from God. To reject this is actually rebellion. In Paul's great speech in Acts 17, which he gave to the philosophers there at the city of Athens, he said these words as he concluded his great message. He said, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So one day all of us will be judged by Christ. and We need forgiveness to avoid eternal condemnation. And God wants you to experience that today. He wants you to have a personal relationship with him that comes as we ask for him to forgive us our sins and to believe in Christ who died on the cross. And as we celebrated last Sunday, he rose from the dead to show that he was victorious over over the grave. My friend, God will give you a new heart will love him and worship him and want to bring him glory and honor and to experience eternal life with him forever. Let's turn to the Lord this morning. Shall we pray?
Lord, we always marvel at your word. This morning as we've gone just through a few verses of a familiar book, what's often regarded as a kid's story, we see how there are just so many depths and layers to the word of God. And so, Lord, as your word has been preached here this morning and as people have listened to it online, God, we pray that you would do a powerful work through your word this morning. We know that your word does not return void, and we pray that it would do all that you accomplish it to do this morning. We pray for believers, that God, we would uh, be humble before you. And where there are areas of rebellion in our hearts, may we not be like Jonah and flee and run from you. But may we confess those things to you today and forsake them. Let us just lay those down at your feet this morning, at the foot of the cross, accept your forgiveness, and to walk in that freedom that you offer. And Lord, for someone perhaps listening this morning who has never trusted you, never trusted Christ to be their personal Lord and Savior, even in this moment now, God, I pray that they would call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and that they would be saved, to know him personally, not just to know that you exist, God, but to know you in a real and personal way. We ask all of this in that matchless name of Jesus, in whom we pray, amen.